Good to see y'all. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, Robin asked earlier about spring break. Uh, our family just finished up spring break. And so the, uh, last weekend, Molly told me, she said, hey, uh, you know, we're not really going anywhere. It's more of a staycation kind of week. So why don't you go to Costco and get a bunch of vacation food? And I was like, are you sure you want me to do that? Because I will for sure do that. And I will go crazy doing that. And she said, yeah, go ahead and do that. So you know, we just, I just went crazy and I got all this stuff that we don't normally get, uh, you know, poppy seed muffins. And the kids like did a dance when poppy seed muffins came in the house and, you know, a bunch of Cheez-Its and ribs and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so it's just been kind of a fun, fun week to indulge in some like of our favorite things that we like as a family. And then, and then here I am getting to preach Isaiah 53, which is like the poppy seed muffins and the ribs of the Bible, right? This is just an incredible passage. Some people call Isaiah the fifth gospel. And this passage is probably why some people refer to it that way. This passage is the mountaintop. It is the best of. This is the warm chocolate chip cookies. Uh, this passage is uh, Steph Curry's jump shot. It's the sound of a rushing river through the mountains. It's an Arizona sunset. It's Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing. It's Mariah Carey singing Oh Holy Night. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It's a weekend away without the kids. Uh, it's just really awesome. It's such a good text. And... Uh, and I'm excited to be able to preach it and to be able to look at it together. And uh, some things here will be brand new for some of you. Uh, some things here will be hopefully preciously familiar to some of you. Uh, because in this, we really get the heart of the Christian message, the heart of the good news that we have. So we've been exploring Isaiah 40 through 55. If you're just joining us, that's the series we've been in. It's called The Servant King. And it's really uh, God speaking to his people on two different horizons. On the more immediate horizon, he's talking to his people Israel who are in exile in Babylon. They've been carried off there, hauled off into a land that's not their own. And on the, on the, on the short-term horizon, God is saying, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to set you free from exile through the work of this servant that I'm going to send on your behalf. But there's a further horizon, a, a deeper horizon that is really looking at how God is actually going to set all of his people free from the exile into sin, into the bondage and slavery that comes through sin and death. And he's going to do that through this work of the servant. He's going to remove our sin and he's going to do it through this servant who has come, this uh, servant who throughout the book of Isaiah has been like a little bit more and more coming into focus. At the beginning and the early mentions of the servant, you think, well, perhaps the servant is just another way of talking about Israel. And then you think, well, maybe the servant is Isaiah or maybe the servant is a particular prophet. But then last week we were told that we need to actually obey the voice of the servant, that this servant almost seems to be divine and sinless. And here we get a glimpse of who the servant is. Now, uh, we know who the servant is because in the Gospel of Luke, on the night of the Last Supper, when the disciples are confused about what's about to happen as Jesus is about to go to the cross, on that very night, Jesus, with his disciples, he quotes Isaiah 53. And he says, here's what's about to happen, and he quotes Isaiah 53. So Jesus saw himself as the servant. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of everything that we're going to look at, everything we're going to read. And so this message is really about the good news about Jesus, what we see about who he is and what he's accomplished for us. Another really interesting thing that comes up is in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, there's this really interesting scene where um, Philip, who's one of the followers of Jesus, is, is walking along and he comes upon this chariot. And in this chariot is this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, this guy who had served in the, 
in the like government official royal you know court of the queen of Ethiopia and he's made a 2,000 mile journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem where he went to worship now because he was a eunuch he probably wasn't able to actually get into the temple because and he was a Gentile and all sorts of things and so he's clearly a very hungry spiritual person but he's probably left Jerusalem a little bit like what am I doing now and he's there and he's he's reading from a scroll now in those days it was very unlikely that anyone would ever actually have their own copy of the scriptures but Working for the queen of Ethiopia means you have some money and you have some resources. And so this Ethiopian uh, court official is reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip says to him, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he shouts back, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip gets up into the chariot and talks through how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that he's reading. And then they go a little further and the Ethiopian says, hey, there's water, I should just be baptized. Why don't I get baptized here? And he gets baptized. So maybe that's the case for you. Maybe you're someone that's kind of been kicking the tires on the faith and exploring Christianity. And you're kind of going, I don't know what I think about all this. I just think you, you couldn't have come at a better time to see in this text the heart of the message of Christianity. Uh, that's what we're going to see together tonight. So here's just an overview, and then we'll uh, dive in. Uh, we're going to look at the news of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the substitution of Jesus, and the victory of Jesus. So will you pray with me, and we'll dive in. Father, we ask you now to speak by your Spirit, to speak, to anoint my words, to help us by, our, by the Spirit to have insight into your word as we hold it open and read it. God, I pray for any tonight who are searching, who like that Ethiopian court official are uh, on a search and finding themselves that everything they stumble into that's not quite fulfilling, God, would they find fulfillment in you tonight? God, for those who are uh, really familiar with this message, I pray that rather than it being like a yeah, 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 it would be a yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as we pray, I just wanna invite you, just where you are, just wherever you are on that journey, would you pray for yourself tonight? Would you pray that you could have ears to hear God's word? And now would you pray for me? I've been frustrated all day at how much I love this passage compared to how eloquently I can explain it. Pray that I could speak with not eloquent words, but with the power of God. So Lord, we come tonight to hear your voice speak for your people are listening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. All right. Well, let's start with the news of Jesus. We're going to back up from uh, before where we started reading a moment ago into chapter 52, verse 7. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, you're going to want one. You're going to want this. We're going to look at it. I'm going to point out different words, and you're going to want to follow along. There's uh, Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, uh, reach down under there and grab it. Uh, Chapter 52, verse 7, the news of Jesus. It says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring Good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This message of Christianity is good news. It's something to be published. It's something that happened twice there in verse 7. Good news, good news. The Greek way of talking about the good news is to say the word gospel, So here he's saying, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, and the message, this news is that your God reigns. You reign above it all, we sing. You reign above it all. Over the universe and every human heart, there is no other name, Jesus, you reign above it all. That is good news tonight. That is good news in a world that's crumbling. That is good news in a world that's hurting. That's good news in a world that's anxious and confused and wondering what to do is that God reigns. This is good news. The message of Christianity is not an advice message. It's a news message. We say this a lot because people so easily confuse this. Is people think, you know, Christianity is about advice. Hey, 10 steps to this. Maybe an insight here or there that will really change things. False. Right? Here's advice. Advice is go get yourself a Norwex rag because I hear they're incredible for cleaning your house. And then here's 10 tips for keeping a cleaner house. Right? That's advice. Right? I, I don't know about you. I mean, I hear that a Norwex rag is life-changing. Right? I asked a group of people one time, what's one thing that you, that you would just totally 10 out of 10 recommend to everybody no matter what? And more than one person said, a Norwex rag. And I thought... Wow, I had no idea this could change my life. But, but right, say, hey, get an Oryx rag and get to work, clean your house. That's advice. News would be, hey, guess what? We sent a cleaning crew to your home. They're there right now while you're here at church. And when you get home, you're going to get home and you're going to start the week with a brand new clean house because they're doing it right now. That did not happen. Uh, that is not yet part of the budget. Sorry. Uh, but that would be pretty great, right? So that's the difference is, is Christianity is not, hey, grab a Norwex rag and get to work. Christianity is look at how God cleaned up your mess. Look at how God's cleaning up your heart. Look at how God is making things new. And this news is your God reigns. He says in verse eight, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. We talked last week about how uh, God's arm is not little T-Rex arms, right? God's putting on the gun show and he's saying, I'm bearing my arm. I'm doing something for you. He tells them in verse 11, depart, this this exile, this slavery to sin, it's over. Verse 12, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Isn't that an amazing picture that no matter where you go, here's the news. Is that if you're part of God's people by faith, then God is guarding you on the front and he's watching your six on the back. 
and you're surrounded by his love. The God who reigns and rules over everything is watching over you. (laughs) That's news. That's really great. And so it's not surprising then when we read the first gospel that was written, the gospel of Mark, and then we read the first words of Jesus recorded in the first gospel written. Do you know what he says? It sounds a lot like this. Here's what Jesus says. First words recorded in the gospel of Mark. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, our God reigns. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, that's who I came to be. I came to be that kind of a servant. Well, Jesus is unlike anyone else. And that takes us to our second reflection tonight from Isaiah 52 and 53 is the uniqueness of Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus. Look at verse 15 of chapter 52. It says that uh, this servant will sprinkle many nations And get this, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Now, if you're a king, you don't shut your mouth for anything. You just, you got power, you got opinions, people want to listen, people want to care. You, you, nothing, nothing makes you quiet. But here's what it's saying. It's saying that there's something about this servant that is like making kings speechless. What is it? What could make a king speechless? Well, it's the uniqueness of this servant. Look at the contrast in verse 13 and 14 between the exaltation of the servant and the humiliation of the servant. Look in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And we go, oh yeah, that's the kind of king I want. I want a high and lifted up and exalted one. And any time in the Hebrew, by the way, that the same idea is used more than once, especially if it's used three times, it's like, this is a big deal. This Messiah is high and lifted up and exalted. And it's like the kings of the earth are like, yeah, that's like me. I like that. And then look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you. That word astonished in the Hebrew It means shattered or desolate. So many people then looked at this servant and were desolate, like look away. Ugh, I can't can't take it. Why? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Wait a minute, what? I thought he was high and exalted and lifted up. He is. But he's also so beaten and so tortured that you're like, is that guy even human anymore? Chapter 53, verse 1. The arm of the Lord has been revealed. There's his power. But verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Root out of dry ground. What that's referring to is that you can't trace his lineage really. You don't know where his roots are. Like... He didn't come from some big impressive family. He just kind of, where did he come from? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Is that what you want from your, your powerful politicians? Is that what you want from your movie stars, your rock stars? despised, rejected, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In Jesus, you have this utter uniqueness that he is at the same time lion and lamb, glorified and exalted and suffering and humiliated in the same person. It is this, what Jonathan Edwards called this divine combination of excellencies that only are in Jesus. And you see this when you see Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus is out there and there's a huge storm and he tells the storm to be quiet and right away it's quiet. And the people say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then he casts out demons. They say, who is this? Even the demons obey him. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? We've never seen anybody like this. No one's ever spoken with this much authority. No one's ever liked this man. Who is this guy? And yet other people, they experience Jesus and they go, that guy from Nazareth? This is like, is he from Gila Bend? Like, you can't tell me the king of the world's from Gila Bend. Right. And then Jesus, in the book of Luke, in the book of Luke, Jesus goes to his hometown synagogue and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah to a later part beyond what we're looking at here tonight. And he reads it and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they don't stand up and clap and say, we knew it. We voted you most likely to be Messiah. They say, uh, Isn't this Joseph's kid? See, this is is what's confounding. This is why it says in 53 verse one, who has believed what he heard from us? This is too weird. This is too strange. On one hand, Jesus is utterly glorious. On On the other hand, Jesus is utterly like, look away from him. And so if you find yourself wrestling with faith and go like, man, I just find this so hard to believe. Like, I want to believe, but then I don't know if I can. And I wish God would just sort of slam dunk it and make it so obvious and so easy. It doesn't work like that. You could have a king like all the nations have, but then you wouldn't be sure if you could trust that because you'd go, well, that's just like everybody else has. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. It stops the mouth of kings. It's power that came to serve. There's no one like him. That leads us third to the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus. We see this in verse four. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. These words born and carried means to lift up, to take away. Our sorrows weren't, weren't dumped on Jesus as though he didn't want it. Jesus carried them. He scooped them up. He moved toward our sin. He moved toward our shame. He moved toward our fear. He's like the the father in the story of the prodigal son who's looking and while his son's still a young long way off, he runs to him and surrounds him. This is what this is what Jesus does for us. This is his love for us. This is a voluntary move on the part of Jesus. He is carrying, he is scooping up, he is he is taking voluntarily our sin in our punishment, in our death. Here's what Jesus says about it in John chapter 10, verse 17. He says this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now it will go on to say in verse 10 of chapter 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in fact, it was. And Jesus did absorb the righteous wrath of God against the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. But that is Jesus' choice. Jesus wanted to do that. Jesus did that, it says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
This is the love of God. And we, we love, I mean, anytime there's a sacrificial story like this, I mean, it just grips us. It moves us. Somebody moving voluntarily for the good of someone else to love them. I mean, our movies are just filled with this, right? The movies we show our little kids from, from early, right? This is Beauty and the Beast, I don't know if you've ever, some of you need to watch more kids' movies, right? They're filled with the gospel. Beauty and the Beast, you have Belle and her beloved father, and her beloved father gets trapped by this beast. And she shows up there, and as an act of sacrifice, she trades places with her father. She works out a deal with the beast. Let him go, and I'll take his place. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He's becoming enslaved to the beast of sin on the cross so that we could go free. And then it's the love of Belle, even in the midst of being around an enemy and even in the midst of being around someone very unlovable. And it's actually through her loving the unlovely that the beast becomes a prince. What does that sound like? The gospel. Okay, well you could go into other movies. You got Harry Potter. Right, Harry Potter, who is protected by the sacrificial love of his mother and who later on in the story is going to realize that he has so much power that the only way he can actually use his power for good is he's going to have to sacrifice himself. By the way, these are old movies. If you're like disappointed by the spoiler, like you had, I don't know, a decade to get around to it. Big Hero 6, Baymax does the same thing. If you're a little more rugged, okay, then go with this. Go with Clint Eastwood, Gran Torino. The ultimate get off my lawn guy, right? And at the end of that movie, you think he's, he's loaded up with all his guns that he's going to take care of all these gangbangers in order to protect his friends. And instead, he walks out there and he allows himself to be utterly destroyed, shot to pieces so that the people who opposed his friends would be arrested and taken away and his friends could be free. And as the closing shot zooms out, Walt Kowalski is laying there in the shape of the cross. Story after story after story after story. Why? Because every great story borrows its strength from this story. This is the picture of love. This is the picture of sacrifice. This is the picture of good news. And it's even more amazing with Jesus because Jesus never had to die. Right? When, when we think about somebody who, who steps in front of a bullet, we think of somebody who dies on behalf of a friend. We honor, and as we should, people in the armed services who sacrifice themselves so that we can live free. Right? That's wonderful, and we really rejoice and we praise that. At the same time, those people are going to die eventually. Jesus was never going to die eventually. I don't know if you ever thought about this. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, Jesus was like on schedule to live forever. Death had no right to him. It wasn't like, well, he just sped up what was coming anyway. No, he chose something that was not part of his future. Why would he do that? The answer is love. Look at what it says in John 15. Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you're my friends. If you follow me, if you do what I say, if you trust my word, you're my friends. And I love giving myself for you. This leads to number four, the substitution of Jesus. The substitution of Jesus. So much at the core of this good news is about substitution. It's about his life for ours. It's about him being punished for us, taking our place. Look at verse four. Surely he is born 
our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Are you hearing these words to describe Jesus? Smitten by God. That's like, not like Valentine's Day, smitten. That's like smited. Afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised wounded, oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered, judgment, cut off, stricken, crushed. Verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Here is the substitution of Jesus. That what Jesus does in carrying our sorrows and carrying our griefs is he also carries away our sin. He substitutes himself for us. He moves in our place. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He's punished for sins that we commit as his people. The things that we know we shouldn't do that we do anyway, Jesus is dying on the cross for those things. The things that we ought to do that we just don't get around to, but we know that would be better. That's sin too, that's sins of omission. Jesus died for those. The sins you committed today, the sins you committed since you've been on campus, the sins you'll commit tonight. If you are in Christ, all of those sins of every person who would ever believe in Jesus were, were paid for by him on the cross. This is the agony of the cross. This, this is, I mean, I don't know this exactly, but one of the things that you see when you watch the crucifixion scene in the scriptures is that uh, the other two that are crucified, they have to break their legs to speed up their death. Jesus is already dead because the weight of the wrath of God against sin is so heavy. Not to mention the lashes, not to mention the crown of thorns, not to mention the mockery and the spitting. This is the substitution of Jesus. John Stott says it this way, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what sin is. Sin is saying, I'll call the shots, I'll make the rules, I'll determine what makes things good and what things are right and what things are beautiful and what things will make me happy. I'm gonna live for me, right? It's, it's we put ourselves in the place of God. And the gospel, the message of Christianity, the substitution of Jesus is that he substitutes himself for us. Jesus actually suffers in the place of actual sinners to create actual salvation. Get this, Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. He died to actually save his people. He did not die to make you savable. He died to make you saved. 
There is not like, hey, I set the slate clean, now you go do a bunch of good. No, no, no. He did it all. He paid it all. This is foreshadowed in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 3, I mean, this just blows me away. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, we get a picture of substitution. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They know that they're not supposed to eat of this one particular tree. They see that it looks great. They go ahead and eat of it anyway. They substitute themselves for God. They call their own shots. Instantly, they feel ashamed. Instantly, they know they're naked. Instantly, they try to cover themselves up and hide from God. And so they're covering themselves with fig leaves. And they've been told by God, listen, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. And so no wonder they're hiding from God. Because they just did what they knew was going to make them have to die. And then here's what it says in Genesis 3.21. It says that instead of them dying, the Lord clothed them with animal skins. How do you get animal skins? Or this is like that thing they say about breakfast, that when it comes to breakfast, the, the chicken's involved and the pig is committed. Some of you will get that tomorrow when you're having breakfast. <laughs> But you don't get animal skins without killing the animal. And so as soon as Adam and Eve sin, there's a substitutionary sacrifice in their place. There's an innocent animal that dies in the place of guilty sinners. You see the same thing in the gospel. As Jesus stands there at the Passover and Pilate says, hey, I have this tradition. I let someone go every Passover. Uh, who would you like me to give to you? The king of the Jews? By the way, that's some pretty sweet irony that the Roman pagan governor, even without realizing it, is declaring that Jesus is king. Who do you want? The king of the Jews? And they go, no, no, no. Give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? Barabbas was a notorious criminal. He led an insurrection. He was a murderer, right? There were three crosses there. One of them was scheduled for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Crucify him. You know what the name Barabbas means? Son of, a Son of a father. Son of a father. How about that? Who, so, so who's Barabbas? He's representing everyone who's a son of a father. Who's who? Everyone. Right, like, his name might as well be some guy. And all of us sons and daughters of fathers get to be set free because the true son of the true father died as a substitute in our place. Do you see it? Oh, it's good. Now, if that's all we had, it'd be pretty great, but it gets better. And that's where we'll finish. Number five, this passage tells us about the victory of Jesus, the victory of Jesus. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What? What? Wait a minute. This guy was just, verse 9, in a grave with the wicked. This guy was just crushed. This guy was just pierced. This guy was just smited. This guy was just stricken. This guy was just cut off from the land of the living. How can you be cut off from the land of the living and then have it say, oh, by the way, you'll also see your offspring, you'll prolong your days. Huh? What is this referring to? It can only be referring to one thing. That three days later, 
up from the grave he rose. He died in our place, but he didn't stay dead. He was buried and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And he's now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he has, as it says in verse 11, made many to be accounted righteous by bearing our iniquities. Here's the good news of the gospel, is if we will trust in Christ, if we will believe in him by faith, then not only does he pay for our sins and our sins are credited against him, but all of his righteousness is credited for us. Because listen, you can't just stand before God if you're like uh, neutral. It's not like you get before God if you're just not sinful. You have to also be righteous. And so our debt is not just that we're, I mean, it's, it's big, right? We're not only not righteous, we're sinful. And the whole table's flipped because of Jesus. And the resurrection turns that on its head. And now this risen Lord who is at the right hand of the Father, it says in the end of verse 12, makes intercession for the transgressors. Think about that. What God should do to transgressors is crush us and pierce us and smite us and cut us off and exclude us and have nothing to do with us anymore. And instead, what Jesus Christ, the Lord of history, is doing, it says in verse 12, is making intercession for you and for me. That's a fancy way of saying he's praying for us. Are you in that extended season of life, Lent, that Nikki talked about earlier? Where Lent doesn't just feel like a 40-day season leading up to Easter, but it feels like the extension of the season of suffering and darkness you've been in. As you're walking through it, here's what I want you to know, you're not alone. He's on the front and he's watching your six and he's with you and he's praying for you and you might be in the valley right now. But even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, you fear no evil for he's with you. He's your shepherd and he loves you. Now, everything I've told you tonight is available for anyone who will receive it. Uh, This uh, dying for sins is not that Jesus just died for everyone's sin. Jesus died for the sins of anyone who would ever repent from their sin, turn away from it, and turn and trust him. And if that's you tonight, then you can be saved. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, tonight could be a night that you would be saved. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's because at some point you have turned from your sin and you've trusted in Christ. And let tonight be just another reminder to you that all of these benefits are for you because of the grace of Christ that's been given to you and that you have received by faith. And man, if if you just, if you haven't, turned yet and if you haven't surrendered yet tonight's the night what are you waiting for this is the Lord of all the lion who became a lamb so that you could be with him forever let's pray so father thank you for the way that you shepherd our hearts by your word for the way you reveal who you are. And Lord, tonight in this text, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. And we pray that you give us eyes to see it, that the the seed that has fallen on good soil would bear fruit. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen.